the employee journey I'm talking about with Chris Wilkinson, who is the Managing Director of Expert HR Solutions. We talk about patient journeys in the NHS, we talk about customer journeys in marketing, and now we have the employee journey. What's that, Chris? The employee journey basically is is the journey that the employee takes through their employment. So starts off with actually getting selected, um, being offered, accepting the offer, uh, expecting some kind of benefit for the hard work they're hopefully going to put in for the employee, uh, and eventually uh, they're going to leave. The days of people, jobs for life, pretty much over. Um, average employee nowadays, if you're talking about someone in their 20s, probably no more than two years. Really? How interesting. Mm. Gone from a mm. lifetime job, mm. two years in two generations. And so in that journey, then the package is going to be very, very different to what it was for people who came in former generations where you got the, the clock and everything after 40 or 50 years. Of, yeah, um, ab- absolutely. Much faster paced now. Um, much greater expectations uh, and I'm not sure it's the right word but really less less willingness less patience mm. wanting to actually move quicker um, I suppose if you, if you said to somebody you've only got two years to make a difference in this role that's a, a completely different proposition, isn't it? It is. Well, I mean, traditionally, of course, if you look at the, the very senior levels, they will talk about the criticality of the first 90 days mm. for a new chief exec or, or something like that. So, you know, their, their timescale to actually make the impact is is even shorter. We'll steer a football manager, shall we? Aren't they in territory? <laughs> One of the major aspects of the employee's journey is the whole subject area of holidays. So if I may ask you some questions and then we'll, uh, we'll get your input from your experience and research. Is everyone, is everyone entitled to holidays? <laughs> Believe it or not, the answer to that is a simple no. Ooh. So if you are self-employed, you may choose to give yourself holidays, but actually legally you're not entitled to them nor are you legally entitled to holiday pay. Uh, and actually the same applies for the rather strange category of, uh, of office holder. Uh, so that's people like non-exec directors right. and so on and so forth in, in bigger companies. And they too are not entitled to holidays or holiday pay. There's, there was, I thinking of the mayor, the office holder. <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. So what is the minimum amount of holiday an employer must give per year? Ooh, having had a nice simple question last time, now you've got, gone and got me one on one that's actually quite, quite a simple question, but quite a complex answer. It really depends on your working patterns um, in, in that sense. So we talk about the simple end to start off with. If you are working five days a week for an employer, uh, then you are entitled to, in the UK this is, uh, you are entitled to 20 days annual leave and eight days public bank holidays. However, there is something called the Working Time Directive, which also has something to say about holidays, and it basically requires every uh, employer uh, 
across Europe, in, in, in this case, because it's a, a European piece of legislation, every employer to give 25 days holiday to each employee. They do not differentiate between public and annual holiday. So anything that is linked with holidays, that is linked through to the working directive, the number is 25, but anything with uh, UK employment legislation, it effectively is 28, so 20 plus 8. Wow. And if I'm part-time? If you're part-time, uh, if they work a set number of days a week, then you just divide the 20 and 8 by 5 and multiply by the number of days they work yeah. and then round the figure up. How you round it up depends on how your contracts of employment are actually written. So your contracts of employment or your holiday policy allows for people to take half day leave, half a day's worth of leave, you would round up to the nearest half day. Uh, you don't permit that, then you're rounding up to this whole day. Right. So we need to check our contracts then. Think about these the employee seriously. would need to check their <laughs> contracts. They they should be given them. Um, at the moment, they have to be given them within eight weeks of starting. They have to be given the opportunity to take them away, read them, understand them, and be given the opportunity to ask any questions that they may or may not have. Uh, but uh, they also uh, need to make sure that they do actually understand that the responsibility is two-way. It's mm -hmm. not just one way. Um, in terms of that. And I forgot to mention when I was talking earlier that actually some people don't work set days or even set hours. Right. Um, there is a method of calculating that. Sadly, it becomes really quite complex. I was going to say this sounds complex. Yep. Um, you basically have to work out how many hours they've actually worked over a rolling 12-week period. Multiply those hours by 12.07%. And that will give you the number of hours that that person has actually accrued in terms of leave. I won't go into the detail of why 12.07%. I was going to say, why would you come up to a point zero? It, it is perfectly logical, trust me, it does work out. And holiday pay is calculated using? The same calculation for someone who works irregular hours. Yeah. Um, Holiday pay is a contractual entitlement, so it's not an a employment law. Uh, in right. So it's holiday it pay is not defined in law. Um, most employers will pay holiday pay uh, at the same rate as the, their normal rate of, of pay would be for a day or whatever. Even if they're salaried, you can work out what their daily rate of pay actually is. So that's very clear. This is contract and not law. Yeah, the contract might stipulate, for instance, it's I'm sure, but I've seen it happen, it might actually stipulate a greater rate of pay mm. for holidays in order to encourage people to actually take them, because holidays are good for you. <laughs> I know a lot of people who get put under pressure because they haven't taken their allotted leave. That's quite interesting. So, another question for you. Is anything change in employment law about holidays in the near future? <laughs> yes. In spades. Uh, last year, there was a review done by a gentleman called Mr. Taylor. Um, he came up with 43 different recommendations 43. as to how uh, things could be changed for the better in the workplace generally. The government have 
relatively recently announced they are accepting 41 of those 43 recommendations. It's phenomenal, isn't it? Uh, so we can expect probably the largest amount of change in terms of employment law in my living memory, and I don't mind admitting I'm well towards the end of my working career as opposed to towards, towards the beginning. So, yeah, lots of changes going to be coming through. Over but several years? The, the timescales have not yet been announced, yeah. but, I mean, at the end of the day, governments are only in power for a set period of time. Of course. Um, so I think we can expect it over the next two, maybe three years. Next term, yeah. OK, let's um, shift from holidays then to benefits. This is what's part of the package that's going to attract an employee to do that journey with the employer. So my first question would be, apart from pay and holiday, are there any benefits an employer must give an employee? Yes, the uh, a little while ago, uh, something called the Pensions Auto Enrolment Regulation yes, was introduced. I remember it, yeah. um, so now it is mandatory for all employers to actually offer the availability, at least, for people to actually have a workplace pension. Um, currently. Uh, or just about, uh, the requirement will be for anyone who does enrol in that workplace pension uh, for the employer to make a contribution of 3% of salary uh, and for the employee to make 5%. Right. That's what the law states. If the employer wants to flip that round or change that, can, but they can only change it upwards. They can't change it downwards. That's the minimum of contributions, 3% by the employer, 5% by the employee. So if I went to a company and I said, look, we'll do 5% and you do 5%, that would be... That would be okay because you're exceeding. Yes. What they couldn't you do cannot. is we'll both do 3%. And that's really in everybody's interest, isn't it, long term? Yes. I mean, anything to do with pensions, the earlier you mm. start contributing to those pensions, the bigger the pot that you will actually build... Uh, and therefore, the more money you've actually got to draw on in your retirement when you're no longer earning because you've retired. Exactly. Uh, so yes, very much so. Uh, but uh, what it, it, it does mean is you're sacrificing some money today for a benefit that's going to happen at some stage in the future. Today, jam tomorrow. That's the one and cakes. Excellent. So pensions, is, is that it? E legally, the answer is yes. However, uh, the employment marketplace today in, in 2019 uh, is incredibly buoyant in, in the UK. Like most pieces of statistics, there will be exceptions to this. But pretty much, crudely speaking, you can actually say there are probably around about 10 jobs available for every potential applicant. It's phenomenal, isn't it? It's incredible, yeah. So it makes it a very competitive pay mm. place. Mm -hmm. So if you want, it's not even just a question of wanting to attract the best. Actually, if you want to get that 
one person who's got, got 10 opportunities, if you want them to come and work for you, you'd do well to have a look to see whether you can work out some other benefits uh, that will attract them to come to you rather than anyone else. And pretty consistently, the most uh, popular benefit amongst employees is some element of flexible working, whatever that actually means. Bit of time freedom, yes. Yeah, it's, they get more... Cho- it, it, it's no longer um, Monday to Friday, 9 to 5.30. It's, well, actually, do you know what? I'm really struggling to get childcare on mm-hmm. a Friday. Yes. So Can Friday. I still fit those 37 and a half hours of the standard working week? I compress them down into Monday to Thursday. You're still getting the same amount of work. I therefore still expect the same amount of money. Still get the same value, yes. But I'm actually benefiting because I can't get childcare on on Friday. And you, the employer, are benefiting because if I can't get childcare on the Friday, it's actually quite possible that I might just not always turn up on a Friday. Mm. Brilliant. So it's a win-win, isn't it? It can be, yeah. I mean, you know, they're complicated to to operate, but um, if it brings you an employee in, gets you the right recruit. Yes, exactly. Then think about it. Stuff's going to happen on the journey, Chris. And one of the things we can't avoid in life is sickness. So, are all employees entitled to sickness absence? If I focus on the word entitled, the answer is a, a really simple. No one's entitled to be sick. Um, and no one is therefore entitled to sickness absence. Right. But people do get sick. Um, and yes, there, there are laws around what employers must do. Like most employment law, it effectively sets the level of the high jump bar that you you must at least provide this Uh, and it's an at least so statutory sick pay uh, and statutory sickness absence uh, is what kicks in here Um, they are entitled to that Uh, the levels of of pay change of all stat pays basically change uh, in April pretty well every year Right. Um, in terms of it's that. It's a movable feast then. It's a movable feast as to how much you're going to pay. Um, but sickness absence, in terms of statutory sickness absence, the first three days it are always classed as what's called qualifying days, and they are unpaid. Ah. Uh, so if that's your company policy that you pay statutory, the first three days they don't get any money for, the employees don't get any money for at all. If you have a company policy, then you can make that whatever you want. So it kind of answers the question then, doesn't it? Do I have to pay people who are off sick? You do have to pay statutory sick pay, yes. Uh, but actually, uh, that is only applicable for the first 28 weeks uh, in any 12 month period. And after the first three days. And after those three days, yes. Mm. Your, your sickness, so that's your policy there. Can I discipline someone for taking too much sick leave? I um, recently heard an HR presentation, which was quite funny, where people were taking long sick leave and getting yeah, another job. Yeah. <laughs> um, the simple answer is yes, you can. You would probably, rather than go straight into a disciplinary, 
procedure, you would probably be sensible to start off with capability. Right. Uh, because there might be some underlying cause as to why the person has got uh, a, a lot of absence, and it may be that you can actually resolve that underlying cause in some other way. But the disciplinary policy is there in, in the background at the end of the day. If, if they can't be helped to help themselves, you as an employer don't have to put up with um, constant mm-hmm. short-term ab- absence. Plainly, if someone gets involved in some kind of serious accident or something, they're likely to be off yes. for quite some time. So it, it's, it's horses for courses. But yes, you can discipline people. Now, I understand the word capability, obviously. Um, but what would that look like then if I was an office worker involved with project management? What would the capability assessment be like? Well, I mean, you'd obviously start looking to see whether there are any background type family issues. So, you know, we were talking a little bit earlier about um, people finding it difficult to get childcare. Childcare, maybe I've got elderly um, parents. Maybe I've got care. elderly parents that mm. I'm, I've got caring responsibilities for. Uh, maybe I've got some kind of disability that actually means I've got to go for regular doctor appointments or, or whatever it actually is, or the disability, uh, by definition, a disability means something or other that has a, uh, quite a severe impact on your day-to-day yes. life. Yeah. So, I don't know, someone might have... Um, something they might have a back problem for instance that actually means some days when it's really bad they just can't even get out of bed we talk about all these sort of repetitive strain injuries don't we work related yeah. upper limb disorder um, and and i mean the two commonest reasons for sickness absence uh, in uh, and has been like this since i can remember to be quite honest the two common reasons are stress, not necessarily workplace yes. uh, related, and musculoskeletal. Um, so those are the kind of things that you would be looking into to say, okay, if it's a stress issue, can we help by providing some counselling support for you? If it's a musculoskeletal issue, actually could we get you a chair that's more comfortable Thinking for you to sit in here, or, yes. or, or whatever it actually yeah. is. So there are always ways of looking at these things uh, that actually means that you can keep the person in work. Uh, and always bear in mind, at the end of the day, it's an expensive business recruiting people. Hugely. I'm shocked at the figures. Yeah, you, you're looking... I mean, just just in terms of a relatively simple process you're probably looking at something in the order of seven seven thousand pounds to actually get someone in then you've got the period of time that you've got to develop them train Train them whatever it is because you're unlikely or to get someone who actually hits the ground running from day one Mm -hmm. is that's not going to be that rare. common. <laughs> so we talk about capability first and then ultimately discipline. Ultimately disciplinary, yeah. yes. 
Let's go into disability then, because that could lead to the, the next step, or you've got a policy where you're employing people with a disability. Do you have to continue to employ someone if they become disabled? Um, it would be discriminatory to dismiss someone because of their disability, but that doesn't mean that you can't dismiss someone mm. who is disabled. Is this another capability question? It could be. Um, it really depends on what the disability is and what the job is. Uh, so the ones commonly quoted, for instance, in terms of it fits into, you ask questions about people's health mm. before you even recruit them. So if the person that you're trying to recruit is someone like a warehouse operative who is constantly having to lift and bend and lift objects that might actually be really heavy, yes. it, it would be perfectly reasonable to actually ask someone, actually, have you some kind of disability that actually means bending and lifting would be difficult for you? Because if so, this isn't really the right job no, for you in not, the first place. Not good fit, no. Um, so, no, you can't dismiss because of the disability. Yes, you can dismiss disabled employees. So if I was a warehouse operative and through a poor bending procedure I didn't follow the training I'd had and I put my back out and that's permanent damage, what do you do in that sort of situation? Ooh, um, well, the first thing would be that you would hope you've actually got processes in place that actually stop people doing that. Yes. Um, ultimately speaking, it would be down to someone who is occupationally health qualified mm -hmm. to make the assessment as to whether this person remains fit to do the job that they are employed to do. That doesn't, let's say they said no, they're no longer fit to be the warehouse operative, then the good employer would look to see is there some other job yes. that we've got that we can actually move you into that no longer requires you to, to, to do that. Um, if there isn't, then ultimately you're into ill health retirement or, yeah. or, or dismissal. Okay. Disabled is, a, is an interesting word, isn't it? It's been reframed several times over my lifetime. How would you define disabled in an HR context or an employment context? Oh, we, we lean back on the Equality Act of 2010 as far as that's concerned. And that basically just says it's some kind of physical or mental impairment that actually has a substantial and long-term effect on the individual's ability to do normal daily activities. Um, and long term in that sense means it has lasted or is likely to last for longer than 12 months. It's interesting, isn't it? We've got a, a lady in our close who's got a very obvious sticker on her car which says not all disabilities are visible. Mm -hmm. So she's making a very strong point there about what you're saying. And so we've got the act where it says... Yes, it, inc it includes mental, mental health. Mental and physical impairment, yeah. yeah. And actually not all physical impairments are necessarily that visible. I could believe hers is a physical impairment, it, it, but not visible. But not visible, yeah. yeah. So that's interesting, isn't it? What are protected 
characteristics. Is this uh, HR speak? This, uh, <laughs> so, yes, yes, it is. It's also employment law speak. Uh, protected characteristics are those that are protected under the Equality Act. Uh, and effectively, as an employer, what that actually means is you cannot discriminate against a person because they have one or, one or other of these characteristics, or perhaps multiple. Um, and I'm rejoicing that one of them is age. It is, yes. And that means in both directions, by the way. It's right. not just oh, old age. You couldn't discriminate against people on, on the basis of the fact that they're Being younger too as young. well. Yeah. How encouraging. So it's age in either direction. Um, disability we've already mentioned. Uh, the Equality Act introduced a few new ones to this uh, compared to the old race relations uh, type legislation. Uh, and one of the new ones that it actually introduced was the reassignment. Yes, I, I, this is um, quite fascinating, isn't it? I'm dealing with some teachers who have some children who do not wish to be he or she. Yeah, uh, that will come. I mean, that's a relatively less Very, usual event. Yeah. Um, of it. Normally, it's it is he becoming he or she becoming he, uh, and the law does define literally the moment that that actually takes place. You cannot discriminate um, in terms of, but you can't discriminate against against someone who actually. Uh, wishes to go through that process effectively is, is the simple way of thinking about it. Marriage and the, the add-on to under the Equality Act became civil partnerships mm -hmm. as well. Um, pregnancy and maternity, which has always been in there. Race, which has pretty well always been in there. Religion has always been in there, but they added in belief. Uh, so if you live your life according to a belief, um, perhaps the most obvious one it would be a Rastafarian. Right. They live their life according to Rastafarian beliefs. It's not a religion, but they are living uh, their life according to that. You couldn't discriminate against them um, on, on that basis. Uh, sex, uh, you can't discriminate on grounds this of is, sex. This is gender. This is yes, male, male, yeah. female, yeah. because we've already covered the gender reassignment um, yeah. side of it. Um, but again, a new one that came in was sexual orientation. Mm -hmm. uh, so the fact that someone may be a homosexual or they may be uh, a, a lesbian. That is their sexual orientation. It's their choice, isn't it? Yeah, it's yeah. their choice. You can't discriminate against them on the grounds of that. And I can't ever see that being a capability issue. That's a prejudice, isn't it? Um, it could be in certain very limited circumstances. So uh, let's say someone's sexual orientation is um, homosexual and the job involves only dealing with uh, young men potentially in states of undress right. uh, then you, you might be able to discriminate against against the, there's been a lot of cases of, of late uh, around football coaches, for instance, in, in that kind of scenario. Think about it, isn't it? 
Oh, let's go back to family-friendly questions. <laughs> the That's nice part side. of the journey is is the family, isn't it? My employees tell me I must have family-friendly policies. Is this right? You don't have policies in place, um, but you must comply with any legal requirements uh, around what are collectively known as family-friendly type thing. So we've already talked about maternity uh, yes. and so forth. Paternity, there are laws yeah. around maternity leave, maternity pay. Similarly, relatively recently, the parental leave uh, and shared parental pay. Um, there are adoption leave and adoption pay rules, so on and so forth. Surrogacy. Surrogacy. Um, yeah. No surrogacy pay. But there are rules around if, if someone decides that they they wish to become either a surrogate themselves or get involved in, in bringing a child into their family through a surrogacy route. Um, parental leave has been around for donkey's years. Um, so the, the, the basic requirement there is, look, if you, if you don't have policies in place, what you need to make sure is that you are actually compliant keep, with the Old Equality Act again. So the Equality Act of 2010. That's very interesting. And as, as the world shifted so much since my first employment, let's think a bit about, we're talking family-friendly here, do I have to offer flexible working? I'll answer that in a slightly raised way, because actually don't have to offer it if by that you mean you're going proactively out to mm. your workforce mm. and say, would you like flexible work? What you are required to do is consider any request for flexible working because every employee now, not just those with caring responsibilities, which is what it used to be, every employee has the right to request flexible working. You as the employer have to consider it and there are defined in the law certain limited reasons as to why you could turn it down. Cool. Uh, but they are, relative speaking, quite limited. The commonest one, to be quite honest, uh, is to offer you that particular, whatever that flexible working is that you're requesting, uh, to offer you that is actually going to cost us more than we as a company could afford. Mm -hmm. uh, because, I mean, let's take that one we were talking about earlier, where the person wants compressed leave, yes. uh, compressed working hours. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll do, Actually, I'll do you, it in four days. I'll do it in four. I'll do what? I'll do my five days worth of hours, but I'll do them in four. But you might be a five day a week operation, which actually means you need someone on that day that they that particular employee is no longer there. Plus, you've got a team meeting, or yeah, you know. or, or or whatever it happens happens to be. But the main thing there is, yes, you have to consider it, and yes, you can only turn it down on on the grounds that are actually set out in the law. Need to know your legals. You do. Oh gosh, sounds like you need expert HR solutions. Yeah, free bit of advertising there. Uh, discipline and grievance. It's going to go wrong somewhere on the journey. We've talked about sickness. We've talked about the nice stuff, family, friendly. But what do I need to do when an employee does something wrong? Actually, this is one of those areas that, that, that if we go all the way back to the start, there's relatively little as a employer 
that you actually have to have in place from day one of actually employing anyone. A disciplinary policy that is compliant with the ACAS code of practice is one, it's one of those, of those bits. Uh, so that's what you've actually got to have. Uh, a discipline right with ACAS, uh, code of practice, and you've got to follow it both in letter and spirit. <laughs> that sounds like a, a solicitor's delight. How could you prove somebody has not done it in spirit? I don't like to cheat about that. <laughs> <laughs> That's not sorry, a question. Uh, it sounds like a minefield. It, it, it is, is, is the short answer. <laughs> Okay, so what do I need to do then when a, an employee complains about something we have done? So we, we've talked about something that the employee might do wrong. What about something we've done wrong? Again, this goes back to right to the beginning. You also have to have a grievance policy. Uh, again. That is, again, compliant yeah, with the ACAS yeah. code of practice. It's obviously a different code of practice, but um, nonetheless, it still has to be compliant. Um, and again, you have to follow it both in letter and spirit. And perhaps the thing to add here is that those two codes of practice make it clear that you can be using both at the same time with the same EE. Um, you don't necessarily have to do it, but you, you can. So it, it's in there. So you might get the situation where you as the employer believe someone has actually done something wrong, so you put them into disciplinary. Yes. The next thing you know is you've got a grievance yes. <laughs> on, on your desk. You then have to make your mind up as to whether you can actually deal with them both concurrently or whether you need but to you deal could. with them separately. You, yeah, you could. and you must consider it. How interesting. I, I think this leads us to a, a really good call to action then. What I'm liking about this is we're not talking about new legislation here. We're talking about stuff that's evolved over decades, maybe even hundreds of years. A lot of very sensible, fair, just thinking has gone into it. We may not all as agree. It's complex. How on earth do we cope with it? It is complex. The way all law, all law in England and Wales, because English and Welsh employment law actually is steadily becoming different from well, that in Scotland and Northern Ireland uh, as a consequence of devolution. The way it works in England and Wales is, is that the politicians will pass things like the Equalities Act and then those acts, uh, pieces of legislation, get interpreted in the courts, um, in employment terms, usually an employment tribunal. Um, and the thing to bear in mind there is that there are around about 150,000 tribunal cases each year in England and Wales. Wow. That's a lot of judgments being taken. Yes, and each one would influence potentially... It may. I mean, the really big one As a precedent for... Creates a case precedent. Yeah. Uh, so, huge amount of furor uh, last year around... Um, the status of workers. Uh, Pim said that all their people who were working for them were actually self-employed. Uh, the employment tribunal begged to differ. Um, I, I think they were all wearing the same uniform. Weren't they were they, wearing they? the same uniform. They were driving around in, in Pimlico um, badged <laughs> vans. They were being given the work by Pimlico plumbers. Actually, most, most importantly, in terms of the law, actually they weren't taking any risk themselves because 
Pimlico sent them to the job and paid them regardless of whether the, whether the person commissioning the job paid Pimlico. And that's essential in terms of a status, isn't it? In if you're self-employed, you've got you to be taking the risk. You have to be risk. taking the risk, yeah. Be, yes. uh, so yeah. those kind of things are, are what are called case precedent ones. Um, and they usually hit the headlines. So, as an employer, you would probably hear about that. What's more subtle are interpretations that judges actually pass in much less high-profile cases that actually have uh, an impact. Um, If you want to keep yourself up to date with those, you can. I was going to say, how would you keep up to date? Um, the, the, the government kindly publishes a weekly synopsis of all full judgments of all tribunal cases that have taken place in the pre- previous week. You could, if you had an almost infinite amount of time available to yourself, time, you could read it? all of those. <laughs> um, your your uh, alternative is you either employ someone as your HR manager, um, quite expensive. Uh, if you're a small company, you can always engage companies like us, and it's our responsibility to keep to ourselves keep up to date. Up to date. Yes. So, so let's, let's um, I coach and mentor entrepreneurs, and when they begin to scale up, the minimum first scale, a, a team of three to be a functionally grow business, because of the way that their psychological types work together. So that's the minimum mm-hmm. I'm going to recommend. So let's say I've got to get two other colleagues. We've got the perfect match as a team. We haven't got in our role. Is that where you come in? Yes. I mean, you, it really... It, every business is unique in its own in its own right, and therefore and the business are unique. One of those three people might come from an HR background, right? in which you don't you, need you an expert HR solution because you will take their yeah. advice. Yeah. Uh, but they've then got to keep themselves up to date and yeah, they've probably I, got a day I job wouldn't coach them um, to. to do. Generally speaking, uh, if you are, I always think this is a slightly insane, if you are classed as an SME, which means you're employing fewer than Small to medium enterprise. Yeah, yeah. Small, less than 250 employees, it's probably not financially sensible to actually employ someone for HR manager. Really? It's Even probably at 250? cheaper to outsource it. Gosh. Not, again, to a certain extent that depends on the level of need mm. for constant HR input into the business, which varies business by business. But if you want a crude rule of thumb, that's where we tend to draw the line to say, NLO 250, they're probably not going to have their own HR department, a bleak HR manager. They may have said someone has responsibility for HR. Mm. It's probably sitting on the side of their desk. Part of their role. Part of their role, not their role. And because of the complexity and how fast things actually change in the world of HR, for those, we actually provide um, HR resources into very large organisations as well as just the small. It just the, 
you cannot be an expert in absolutely everything. No. Despite the name of my company, yeah. uh, I would not profess to be an expert in, in absolutely everything. Um, so the same applies in, in an HR department. They will have the expertise to deal with what we would call business as usual. But if something unusual comes out, they that. may need specialist yes. help. Yeah. Um, I kind of know the answer to this question, but ask it just in case somebody listening is thinking about it. To what degree can automate this journey and the policies? Is there software now that can really accelerate the process? Uh, there are a whole series of software in terms of databases that could give you template documentation. Um, the diff- help, help me with sick pay and holiday pay and all that kind yeah, of stuff. Yeah, I mean, most payroll systems will actually we'll deal that. with that. Yeah. Um, you could invest in an HRIT system that actually not only automates holiday and absence recordings and so on, but actually makes it a bit self-service. So instead of you, the business owner, having to talk to Fred or Joan or whoever it actually is and say okay fine manually filling in some kind of form manually putting that into a a spreadsheet you can set up an HRI system where the employee goes in makes the request it automatically checks to see whether that particular individual in that department or with that specialization or whatever are there too many of those people already, in which case it will automatically reject the request? Right. Um, or if it passes those jumps, it gets passed through to the, the leave approving manager. The leave approving manager just goes in and clicks Ding. on accept. The leave is booked. The leave is recorded. Um, it, it's all fairly automatic. It's like all of these systems. You, They all cost money at the end of the day. But then so does your time as yes. a business owner. Yeah. We're saying that time is that valuable resource. Mm. Uh, talking of time then, what's the most sensible, fastest way to get in contact with you? Probably email. <laughs> Depends on how urgent it actually I mean, an email, we will answer within four working hours. Right. So that's uh, brilliant. So that's it? pretty good. A telephone call, if we are available, we'll answer it when you call but you still get a guaranteed four-hour response time. You're very, very good at meeting with people, aren't you, and just sort of scoping at first stuff. Is that always free, or do you charge for the initial...? The initial meeting is always free. Always free. Um, and if if that initial meeting turns that person into a retained client, they will get uh, at least one free meeting per month uh, on wow. a face-to-face basis as well, as, to, as part of that service. Maintaining that. That's, that's good. So that's Chris at experthrsolutions.co.uk. We'll uh, provide the details with this recording as well. Chris, thank you very much indeed. My pleasure. Thank you. It's good to chat.